Oh, Father, may we see Jesus and turn our eyes to him. And as we open our Bibles and place them on our laps and study your word together, may the word lead us to Christ. May we see him more clearly because we've taken the time to sit quietly before you and worship you through the hearing of your word. Father, we do thank you that we have a great sin bearer. And as we've just sung, that we no longer have to bear responsibility for our own sin. And that Jesus Christ, the righteous one, went to the cross on our behalf. Father, as we hold our Bibles and as we receive a word from you this morning, may there be great rejoicing in our hearts for the great privilege of being your children and having such a great salvation. Father, use your word to convict hearts. Use your word to motivate and challenge us today. Thank you for the great joy it brings to gather together and have times like these. May Jesus Christ be praised. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there was this government worker. He was from the Department of Water Resources, and he was a representative that traveled around South Texas He drives up to a Texas ranch and he stops and he talks to the old rancher. And he tells the rancher, I need to inspect your ranch for your water allocation. The old rancher nodded and he said, okay. But he said, don't go in that field over there. The water representative from the government didn't like that comment and he started in and he said, Mr., I have the authority of the federal government with me. See this card? And he held up his card. This card means that I am allowed to go wherever I wish on any agricultural land. No questions asked or answered. Have I made myself clear? Do you understand? The old rancher didn't say anything, but he just nodded politely, turned, started going about his chores. A little while later, the old rancher hears loud screams and he spies the water representative running for his life and close behind is the rancher's bull. The bull is gaining with every step. The rep is clearly terrified. His life is in danger and so the old rancher immediately throws down his tools. He runs over to the fence and he yells at the top of his lungs, Your card! Show him your card! Well, we laugh at that story, and it is kind of cute. But isn't that a lot the way we are? We don't like to heed warnings, do we? People warn us, God warns us, and we don't always have ears to hear like the government rep that in his pride and in his arrogance, he just thought he knew. He thought he knew what he was doing. He had authority, and he could live out his life. As we continue, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles, not to Matthew 24 as the bulletin indicates, but I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 6, and we are actually going to lay a foundation for what we will go to next week to our Lord's words as he lectures on the last days in Matthew 24. This morning we want to take our time and we want to lay a groundwork and see how those words in Matthew 24 of our Lord and how the words that John gives us from his great vision in the revelation of Jesus Christ fit together. But you need to know that as we study God's word, we're studying prophetic passages. These are passages that, as far as we can tell and by all indicators, have not yet taken place. I think when we look at them, you'll agree with me. There are people that um, when they read, for example, our Lord's words in Matthew 24, and and he warned his disciples, and as I said, we'll look more specifically at it next week, but in Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus a really good question. They asked him a question that if Jesus walked in here today, I would imagine we would want to ask him, Lord, what exactly are the signs of your coming at the end of the age? And what... Jesus gave in response is the longest single answer to any one question in the entire New Testament. It's all of chapter 24 of Matthew. 
And I thought that it would be very valuable for us to examine carefully what our Lord Jesus said specifically would be the signs of his coming. And how does that fit in to the chronology of of history, present and future? Before we go further, let's just remind ourselves of what our, our props suggest here. We've let the Old Testament go. Remember, we went from creation to law and through the Old Testaments and the the silent intertestamental period. And it comes time for Jesus to be born. He grows up, he ministers, he goes to the cross. They bury him. Three days later, he resurrects Romans 1-4 to proclaim with great power and authority that he was indeed the Son of God. Amen. And three days later, he rises from the dead. Forty days later, he ascends up into heaven. And something happens. The Holy Spirit descends, indwells believers, and from then on we have our New Testament church period, an era that we call the the church age or the age of grace. Say that with me, the age of Grace. grace. And that's what our church building represents. But ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, the entire New Testament, it just is filled with what? It's filled with an anticipation of his return. And almost everywhere you look, the the writers of the New Testament, in the New Testament churches, in the Gospels even, in his own disciples, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? And right now we're in the church age, this parentheses time, this time when largely throughout Scripture God has been dealing with the nation of Israel as his chosen people. And I think even catching some of the prophets by surprise as they look forward in the timeline of of, of history future. They didn't catch this mystery parentheses. There's a time here where, where things are different and God has set aside Israel. He's working through his church. But it appears from our studies of scripture and we'll continue to unfold the layers that there's a time coming in the future where God is particularly, though he deals with all men around the world, will deal once again in some specific ways with Israel. Some of the promises of the Old Testament are yet unfulfilled. They haven't happened yet. Well, we had one message so far where that's what we talked about, was the anticipation of his return. And that really, believers in Christ almost everywhere around the world are in agreement on that. That when Christ ascended into heaven, he really meant it when he said he was coming back. And we're to live with an anticipation of that. We had a second message, just two messages so far in our end time series. So if you're new to us, you haven't missed that much. We went to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we're trying to identify some of the parts of the story. In the weeks ahead, we're going to try to put them together in what we can uh, calculate from scripture is a timeline. Now I want to tell you that this isn't always easy to do and not all believers agree on this. And when the scripture doesn't tell us, we have to be careful, don't we? We have to be careful, but there are suggestions and there's nuance and we look at it and we'll study the scriptures together. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's why this symbol is here, we talked about that that time that is an instantaneous event. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul talked about that event happening in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, just in in a flash. It's an unexpected event, it's an unannounced event, and it just doesn't seem to fit in with all of the events that our Bible talks about that are at the time of the second coming. Like in Zechariah chapter 14, it says he will come down, his feet will hit the Mount of Olives, the mountain's going to split, he's going to set up a kingdom, and he's going to rule on earth for a thousand years. Well, I have to tell you, I don't know what to do with that other than to believe that that's what's going to happen. And when in back in 1 Thessalonians 4, what we talked about, we call this event the rapture. Let's make sure we understand our, our symbol here. This arrow shooting up, remember that? That speaks in 1 Thessalonians 4 of what the Apostle Paul said would happen. Who's going to go first, the dead in Christ or we who are alive and remain? The dead in Christ, right? Right up out of their graves. The dead in Christ. Yes, we believe strange things here at Fellowship Bible Church. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, and we will be what? We will be caught up to meet the Lord, and he's going to come down to meet the Lord in the air, and then we'll ever be with the Lord. And we call this event the rapture. It's from a Latin word that means a snatching away. It's not in the Bible. The word rapture is not in the Bible. 
But the concept of a snatching away or caught up, when Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, we will be caught up together, that word caught up is a word that means snatch. And the Latin Vulgate word for that is rapture, where we get our English word rapture. Well, we don't know when that's going to happen exactly. We're to be ready, we're to be waiting, we're to be anticipating, and it's imminent. We don't know when. It, it could happen at any time. And so as we look at our Bibles this morning in Revelation chapter 6, we're actually going to try to get through three chapters of the book of Revelation for this reason. You need to know that in the future, that these events seem to be, uh, uh, have not taken place yet. I think I started to say that some people believe that when Jesus spoke to his disciples and they asked him, okay, what are the signs of your coming? In, in Matthew chapter 24, he then gives this long answer, the longest answer to, their, to a question in the New Testament, and it's continual, it's warnings. It's about warning signs. And I, wanted, I want you to see next week when we're in Matthew 24 how it looks a lot like what we see in the book of Revelation this morning that John saw in his great vision on the Isle of Patmos. But some people believe that in 70 AD, following Christ's ascension, about maybe 35, 40 years later, Titus of Rome came into Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple. You'll recall that part of the disciples' question to the, to the Lord in Matthew 24 was uh, involving the fact that Jesus had said, look at the temple, it's going to be totally and utterly destroyed, and they could not imagine it because it was such a massive building. And Titus of Rome comes in in A.D. 70, and he sacks Jerusalem, and he wipes it out. They light on fire a, a wooden scaffolding all the way around the, the temple, huge stones and gold inlays. The wooden scaffolds burn, melt the gold. The gold melts down among the rocks, and the Roman soldiers take pry bars and teams of horses and tear apart the whole thing to dig out the gold, and it doesn't even look like there was a building there. It's nothing but rubble and a desolate wasteland. They raped the women, they burned the houses, they destroyed the cities, and some people believe that the book of Revelation and Jesus' words are already fulfilled and that it happened in A.D. 70. I have to tell you, I don't agree with that. That was certainly a terrible time. It was certainly a time of utter destruction and chaos. But when we look at our scriptures and we look at what our Lord's words are, one of the things that's different about that event is that what we see John writing down from his great vision in Revelation is that it's worldwide catastrophe. And it's cataclysmic on a level that even the raising of a city, the total destruction of a city as important as Jerusalem, it doesn't compare. We also don't see it ending in A.D. 70 with the bodily return of our Lord Jesus in the Mount of Olives splitting in half. And as I said, I don't know what to do with that if it doesn't mean that when his feet hit it, it's going to crumble and split in half. And that Christ will literally set up a, a kingdom on earth whereby he will fulfill many of the Old Testament prophetic promises to Israel in that literal earthly kingdom. And so this morning, we've got to take a minute and kind of go backwards before we can go forwards. Or you might look at it as going forward because we're looking at prophecy future, all right, and what John wrote down. But I want to lay the foundation this morning for studying Matthew 24 next week when we look at the very words of what our Lord said we should expect. How does that fit in? We're not going to answer all the questions today, and we're not even saying all the time where all these events happen. We're giving the information about these events, and each week we're going to try to add to our timeline and solidify in our thinking why we think where these are coming on the timeline future. As the Lord promised, just as sure as Douglas MacArthur, that he shall return. He will return. Well, let's go to Matthew or Revelation chapter 6, and I have some... Uh, some props up here that we're going to leave up here that will help us remember what we're talking about. Remember that when John receives this great vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ, he was in isolation on a pile of rocks out in the Mediterranean called the Isle of Patmos. Okay? And he was, for preaching the gospel, exiled. Okay? Instead of whacking his head off, they dropped him off on a pile of rocks on this little island. Okay? 
And I imagine that it was difficult living conditions. He was probably somewhat starving and uh, just very difficult there. As far as church history goes and as far as we know, John is the only one of the disciples that ultimately just ended dying of natural causes. But we don't know for sure. And the Bible doesn't say, but church history tradition says that. But he was certainly suffering for Christ. And there on the Lord's Day, he received this great vision. He was commanded to write it down. And that is where we got the book that we call the book of Revelation. And it's not revelations. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because the whole book is about Christ and about how he will be elevated. And you also need to know that even as our Lord taught on the end times, and even as we study in Revelation this morning, you need to understand, it's warning. It's there for us to see, to wake up. Your little card isn't going to do you any good. And we're just like the government guys sometimes. We're filled with pride. And we don't always want to believe what the Bible says. And we don't want to humble our heart before a holy and righteous God. I think you're going to see this morning that, that these events that John prophetically wrote down and he saw from a distance, so he's going to use words like, it was like. And when you read it, you can see that he's kind of struggling to describe what it is. And where the Bible doesn't tell us what he's talking about, we can only kind of guess a little bit and look at it. We have to be careful. So we don't know exactly everything he's going to say, but I think that you will agree with me as we study it that it's pretty bad stuff. Even if we don't know exactly what it is, it's all bad. And you don't want to be there. And you want to take this morning, as you sit in your chair, comfortable, holding your Bible on your lap or listening, you need to take this morning as a warning. This is a warning from God's word that this is going to happen. There is no record in history anywhere that this has taken place. And it's future. And we don't know when and it could happen at any time. The trigger events for this to unfold. Well, there's going to be three sets of judgments that we're going to look at, and they're in three different chapters. In Revelation chapter 6, can you tell what this is, by the way? Good, good. I hope you wouldn't say binoculars. In Revelation chapter 6, we're going to see that there are seven judgments that are going to be pronounced. We'll look at it in just a minute. We're going to read right through them. And you need to kind of picture... The fact that John sees this vision in all of chapter 5 is, is wondering who is worthy to break the seal on the scroll and open it up and deliver the message. Now, this isn't exactly accurate. I put some orange safety uh, ribbon on here and tied it up. Now, this obviously could be slid, slid off the end. But if this were a document of importance in ancient times, they had a way of rolling them up. I have no idea if it looked anything near this. It probably didn't. But this is like my third grade scroll. And they would put them together and they would wrap them in a paper somehow. And then generally what they would do is they would melt wax and put wax on them and put some kind of a, a symbol or signet ring on that melted wax so that the person receiving the official letters or official documents could look down and he could see two things. He could see who it was from and he could see that it hadn't been tampered with. It was still unread. Because once you crack the wax, the wax would crack, there was no putting it back together. And if you put it back together, you would have to heat it up and then you would lose the signet mark. And so my little orange ribbon represents the seals. And you're going to see in Revelation chapter 6, that John has recorded for us that there was only one person worthy of opening these scrolls, breaking the seals. And in fact, I would encourage you to read Revelation chapter 5 on your own. It is a wonderful chapter as it elevates Jesus Christ. And that's what these judgments really are all about. It's going to break the seal, this lamb who was slain, this lion of Judah, this one who is worthy alone, and... To the great relief of all of heaven, he steps forward and starts cracking open these seals. We're going to look at all six of them. And the seventh one, when he cracks it open, takes us to Revelation chapter 8. And it is filled with seven more judgments that are called trumpet judgments. The way this works is, it's not Jesus blowing the trumpet, but there are powerful angels... 
and its powerful symbolism, and each angel is going to blow their trumpet to announce that it's the beginning of another judgment on earth. Ultimately, then, we move. There's some information that's given about the Antichrist and the beast and the false prophet in the, in the time of the tribulation and great tribulation. And ultimately, we go to Revelation chapter 16. And there we find seven bowls. So we have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. It really is pretty neat symbolism, actually, if you stop and think about it. The bowls, as it were, are filled with God's wrath. Listen, this is a warning. This is warning passages for the world to wake up. Do you remember how, how the word tells us, and Paul said in Philippians, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Colossians tells us that in him all things exist and he holds all things together by the power of his word. Listen, Jesus is the king of the universe. The world has just ignored him. This is his world. And when he opens up these judgments, ultimately it gets horrific. And it's as though it were the power of his wrath. So you don't care about who he is. The wrath. It's like the wrath of a holy God. So you're going to use my name in vain and mock me. The wrath. This is the one who comes in Revelation 19 and 20 on the white horse with the sword out of his mouth and ultimately conquers the whole world. You need to see something that's very interesting to me, and that is that as we unfold these judgments that are future, that there doesn't seem to be anything in history that quite matches up to this. it's It's left to the future still. It remains to be seen the accomplishment of all these, that when Jesus begins his teaching, it dovetails perfectly as he he talks about the kinds of judgments and the kinds of birth pangs and things that are going to happen. We'll continue to narrow it down, but let's take our Bibles now and let's get with it. And let's read in Revelation chapter 6, shall we please? John in chapter 5, as I've mentioned, the all of chapter 5 is, is this looking for the one who would be worthy to open the scrolls. And finally, Jesus is pronounced as the one that is worthy. And they praise him and they sing. It's a, it's a wonderful chapter. We jump into the seals. I watched the lamb open the first of the seven seals, Revelation 6.1. And then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, these living creatures are around the throne of God. They say, come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, let's just use this as an illustration of of how we have to be careful with our interpretation. When we read on, guess what? He's going to go right to the next seal that he opens. And we have here what are known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You'll see that the, the red horse, the black horse, and the pale horse, he tells exactly what they mean, and that they are concepts. They are not people. They're not, the horses are not representative necessarily of individuals. And so when you look at the white horse, that's all the information we're given. He looks, the seal is broken, and there's this white horse John sees in this vision. And the living creatures say, come. He says, there was a white horse, its rider held a bow, okay, like a bow and arrow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. That's all the information we have. Then he moves on. So who do you think it is? It's possible that our minds would quickly go to Revelation 20, where Jesus is going to ride out of the sky, out of the heavens, with all of his heavenly hosts, with the sword out of his mouth, and he's going to have his name written on his thigh, and he's going to have, be riding on what? A white horse. But when you stop and think about the context, and you stop and think about what he's saying here, it doesn't appear that this is the same white horse. So when you look at it, white... The white horse, that's a conquering king, a conquering general, would ride through on a white horse. And so this is how we have to be careful. But Bible students would suggest, many Bible students suggest, that this is a picture of a time of, and you notice that it talks about a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. 
that in the beginning of the time of Jacob's trouble, in the beginning of travail, in the time going into the, the leading up to the time when Christ will come back to the earth, there is going to be a conqueror who's going to come and rule the world. That this is the idea of somebody who comes in and creates a one-world government type environment. Oh, what a novel thought. We don't have time to talk about it, but evidently this is indicative of the environment, if not the individual, of the Antichrist himself. It is not Jesus. It would be one who will come and rule the earth. He doesn't have an arrow in his bow. See how you've got to be careful with the symbolism. Oh, what does that mean? He doesn't have an arrow in his bow. Some Bible scholars look at that and they suggest the fact that he doesn't have arrows in his bow or using a sword is that he comes with a threat of power, but that peacefully he conquers the world. Notice that he has the crown. He's, he's identified, or this concept is identified as power, as rulership. And so one of the first things that we see in the seal judgments are that there is going to be some kind of a, a rulership of the world. And I don't take that to be Jesus Christ. And I take it to be part of the ultimate rebellion, and I take it to identify with the Antichrist. Do you see things going on around our world that are setting the stage for a one-world global environment? Oh, it's everywhere, isn't it? The breakdown of economies, the breakdown of monetary systems, the breakdown of nationalism. Have you noticed that? It's almost embarrassing. If you cheer for your country, there's like something wrong with you. It's like we all, you know, we are the world, we are the people. And it's globalism. And so you see the stage is being set. Well, we must move along. The seal, first seal, is the white horse. The second seal, when open, verse 3, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. So somehow in this context of an environment of unified rulership, there is then going to be tremendous bloodshed. You see how he identifies the red horse as men killing each other, armies moving against armies, war upon war, rumors of war. Verse 5, then the Lamb opened the third seal. And he says, I heard the third living creature say, come. So John is witnessing these amazing creatures in the throne room calling forward. And the seals are broken and the, the scrolls are read. And I looked, he says, and there before me was a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for the day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Clearly, he's talking about famine. He's talking about starvation. He's talking about pestilences. And so the, pale ho- the black horse represents death through famine. You'll see next week, that's exactly what our Lord Jesus talked about. Verse 7, when the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a pale horse, and its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. I think that's an interesting phrase, don't you, at the end there? He said, he's given power to kill by the wild beasts of the earth. Doesn't explain itself. There's no other passage to look at that interprets it, that makes it make sense. Do you remember in our Genesis series that it talked about God putting a a fear of man inside of animals? Um, It it was kind of interesting that after the flood and the animals came off the ark that he put a fear in animals of man. Have you ever thought about what would happen if the beasts of the earth were in attack mode all the time? Like you go out on your deck to water your flowers and your hummingbird comes, zing, oh, bam, zaps, it spears your eye. Zing, 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 hummingbirds killing you. You get out of your car and you're, your little puff kitty. It's getting you no fear and in attack mode and the beasts of the earth, is that what it's talking about? It could be. It could be that the fear of man will be gone out of animals, and this will be a time, by the way, at my house, that cat would only do that one time. <laughs> one time. 
That's it. Anyway, I didn't really need to say that, did I? Of course, you don't know really what I meant. Um, I'm, anyway. Um, and so what does that mean? I don't know. It, it could mean also that, that it's imagery. You're going to see in a few verses in a minute in the trumpet judgments that there's going to be crazy, like, indescribable creatures come out of the ground. Maybe it's those beasts that are going to actually sting and attack people. And they're not going to die from it, but it's going to hurt them. Now, I want you to see something here. Let me just reiterate. What John is trying to do is describe the indescribable. John is trying to write down what he's seeing that he's never seen before and he can't really contain it. He doesn't have a vocabulary to put it down. But one of the things you see as the, as the seals are broken and these seals, seal judgments are unfolded, it appears that they are concepts that are being laid down. And I think that it's probably not accurate to think in terms of the fact that the seal judgments happen one in a row and then the trumpets go one, in a, one after the other and then the bowl judgments one after the other. And I think that when the seals are broken and these judgments in, in history future... The end of the world, before Christ comes back, these specific judgments will take place on a global scale. And that as John breaks, as Jesus breaks the ski, as Jesus breaks the seal and John writes it down, he's laying a groundwork. It's like putting down the carpet and everything else is going to, and it kind of, these are the concepts. And it is going to build and it is going to accelerate. Let's read some more and let's get through the trumpets at least. And look what he says. Verse 9, when, I, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. That is an interesting verse, isn't it? Now people have been martyred for their faith through all the centuries. And it's not 100% clear who these people are. It would appear that they are believers in the Lord Christ who refuse to follow the power that is represented on the white horse and that there will be a global strategy of wiping the name of Jesus off the face of the earth and this will be a time of tremendous martyrdom this last day's era of a few years. And people will die for the name of Christ. God is going to raise up witnesses. They're going to be Jewish, 144,000 of them. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And they're going to preach the gospel around the world. And the whole world will be evangelized. And then His coming. But of the people who accept Christ, many of them will die. And here, in John's vision, they are crying out and asking God for justice. And he says, no, wait a little bit longer. The number isn't filled up yet of the number of martyrs. Isn't that an interesting concept? I'm not sure I know what to do with that even, but the fact that God says, a certain number of you are going to get martyred and that's it. In this time of judgment. By the way, let me throw in, and we will build on this in the future, but I believe that this event, the rapture of the church, takes place before all of this happens. I believe that God is going to snatch away His church. And that this is going to be a focus on people who are left behind. This is going to be a focus on Israel as a nation and as a people. But it is going to involve people of all nationalities around the world. He goes on to say, I watched verse 12 as he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. And the sky receded like a scroll rolling up. Notice he uses the word like a lot. And, it, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and among the mountains. 
They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Whoa! We might not know everything that it means, but would you agree with me that this is not a good situation to be in? Not good. Did you notice in the nuance there that the kings of the earth and all of these arrogant people, they will call for the mountains to cover them up rather than turn and fall on their face before a holy God? You'll see later in the passages that as the judgments come, they will readily admit that it's coming from the throne room of God and that Jesus Christ is the king, and they still refuse to honor him. And they will end up in everlasting torment in bitterness in the eternal lake of fire. All because they don't pay attention to the warnings. We've got a few more minutes. Those are the six seal judgments as they open up. And as I'm suggesting, they are long concepts. They are, they are indicators of the era. They are, they are telling what the climate is going to be like. They are more general than they are specific. And the seventh scroll, when its seal is broken, introduces us to the angels and the trumpet judgments. Let's let our eyes drop right down to chapter 8. And when he opened the seventh seal, verse 1 of chapter 8, the seventh seal, it's not a specific judgment. It unfolds the seven trumpets, evidently. And there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And a lot of people made jokes about that verse and whether or not women are going to be in heaven, but I don't think that's funny myself. Um, because they won't be talking for a half an hour. And I think really that men, depending on the subject, like to talk just as much as women, probably. But um, there's going to be silence in heaven for a half an hour, it says. Is that a literal 30 minutes? I I don't know, half an hour. What's happening? Evidently, all those who are observing in heaven, and I take it that would include the church, raptured, it would take, take all the creatures in the throne room, all of the angelic choirs, all of the angelic servant hosts, all of the, those surrounding Christ, that when the, when the seventh seal is broken open and he opens it up and the trumpet judgments step forth and the angels who are going to blow the trumpets, it is so incredible, it is so overwhelming, it just like takes the breath out of heaven. Whoa! Let's read what they say. Verse 6, Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. See, we know what they are. Verse 7 of chapter 8 of Revelation, The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass, green grass, was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and there's something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And what's he talking about? Look at the imagery. It's hard to know exactly what's happening here. I mean, I don't know that there's ever been anything in history that's quite like this. Maybe if you added up all of the burned-off territory in the world, great World War II, you could say, well, a third of the earth was burned up. But it doesn't seem to be like this, where the sea literally turns blood red. You know, one of the things you have to think about in the prophetic, in the prophetic announcements and in the prophetic detail given about the second coming of Christ is that when you go way back and you review the prophetic detail of the first coming of Christ, it said things like this, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And you can sit around and you can say, does a virgin mean a virgin? Surely that... And you see, what I'm saying is that in the first coming of Christ... We look at the words, and then we look at the prophetic fulfillment, we look at the prophetic pronouncement, we look at the prophetic fulfillment, and it's exactly the way they said it would be. So why would we go to the second coming, and look at the second coming of Christ, and then say the words don't mean what the words mean? When he said in exactly the same manner that he's going up into heaven, and I take that to be gravity-defying, that he will come back in the same way. That means... All right? Physical, literal, visual. Listen, 
you got to be really careful and let the Bible explain itself. And so we want to stay inside some parameters of understanding and a little bit of leeway of flexibility of imagining exactly what we're talking about here. But I'm telling you, this is stuff that is horrendous and horrific, isn't it? You know, people have suggested the question, where is America? Where is the United States in the prophetic future time clock of God? I remember when I was a young boy attending prophecy conferences, America was a strong nation in the 60s and 70s, world power. And, and that was a question that was commonly asked of Bible teachers. We don't see in Scripture anything that appears to be the United States. I'm going to show you in the future that it does appear to talk about Russia. It does talk about a united Arab front that surrounds all of Israel. Does that sound like anything that's happening in the news right now? A uniting of Arab nations all around the land of Israel? Russia? It talks about... China, clearly, and huge masses that come from there, from the north. It never talks about the United States. And we couldn't used to, we used to, we couldn't imagine how the United States couldn't play in, because surely nobody can take us. But are we realizing that we're not big and tough? Are we realizing that we are very fragile? That we do not have a moral strength, we do not have a spiritual strength, we do not have a financial framework, and that it is feasible, it didn't used to be in my imagination, it is easy to imagine now, that if God sustains history at a normal pace, that in another 50 to 100 years, the United States will just melt away as the demise of another empire, as history has shown us every empire does. But some Bible students suggest that here in the trumpet judgments, that when the trumpets sound and a third of the earth and the hail and the fire and the blood, that that's going to be some kind of a nuclear blast that's going to wipe out the Americas and a third of the earth goes right there. And then the United States isn't in prophecy. Now, what I just did is all speculative. It's not in the Bible. It's fun to think about. We have no way of knowing, do we? No way. But he says a third of the earth is going to happen. And look at the, look at the imagery in verse 8. A huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Doesn't that sound like some kind of, some kind of space age shot from a satellite nuclear blast that hits the ocean? This bright light that's the size of a mountain of, on fire going into the sea and the radiation and the radioactivity and the nuclear fallout from it kills the Navy and the, all of the marine life and people, marines around there and so forth and even destroys some of the land. Listen, you can speculate all day. We don't know. Does God have to have, does God have, to have physiological answers to pull off what he says is going to happen? Do you have to know the physics? This is the way our brains work, though, doesn't it? He says in verse 10, The angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky, and a third of the rivers, and, and on, on a third of the rivers, and on springs of water, and the name of the star is wormwood. It means bitter, undrinkable. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And the fourth angel sounded his trumpet, verse 12, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. And I watched, and I heard an eagle that was flying midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! 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 To the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels, it's going to get even worse. You see, what people look at that and they say, clearly that's some kind of intercontinental and, and uh, stellar outer space nuclear warfare going on and it ends up the fallout. It could be. But God doesn't need physics to fulfill his word. We love that because we say things like, well, you know, um, 
How about a fish swallowing a man? Can that really happen? It's in my Bible, but could it really happen? And so we think, oh yeah, it happened up off the coast of Iceland or wherever. And some fisherman fell overboard and a certain kind of fish swallowed him. And two days later, somebody harpooned him and they, they cut the thing open and the guy was still alive. And it can really happen. God could really do that if he wanted to. We proved it. Listen, that's utter nonsense. That is utter nonsense. If God said it, his word declares it, God only needs the the nano flicker of a thought and it happens. God operates outside of the physical realm of the universe. And so if a third of the stars fall out of the sky, the third of the stars, a third of the stars fall out of the sky at the thought of God. Colossians clearly says that Jesus holds the molecules of the universe together. That everything is held together by him. And the second he wants to let it go, it'll fly apart. It'll uncreate. And so whatever this is, I think we can agree it's horrible. And whatever it is, I think we would agree, I don't want to be there. And I'll tell you, whatever it is, it is no problem for God to do. Exactly the way he says it. And it is to get our attention. Every knee shall bow, every tongue will confess. Well, the trumpet judgments go on and they get worse. Chapter 9 is kind of interesting. The fifth angel sounds his trumpet. The star fall and then you got these locusts that come out of the abyss. And they're told not to harm the grass of the earth or plant or tree. And they were given, verse 5, not given the power to kill, but only to torture and to sting like the sting of a scorpion. It goes on to say they look like people and long hair like a woman and lion's teeth. Verse 9, they have these breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings is like thundering of many horses and chariots. What's John describing here in his vision? Who knows? Are they literal creatures that are somehow stored in the earth right now? And they come pouring out some kind of demonic force that God releases to let them with limited power attack the population of the earth but not kill them. It's not hard for me to imagine that what John's seeing there is Apache helicopter attack planes, attack helicopters. If you think about the helicopters and the breastplates of iron and and the machine guns shooting and all this stuff and they look like they come up out of the ground in a swarm and who knows? I just know it's bad. And I know that what we're looking at here now is an acceleration of what's happening. We have to stop here for this morning. And you can finish reading about the trumpet judgments. And then it moves into the the outpouring of God's wrath in these bold judgments that take place. Let's conclude by just commenting on three words, shall we? First of all, will you agree with me, as I've already said that what we've seen and what we've described and what God's Word states, number one, that it's horrible? Wouldn't you agree that it's a horrible time? Secondly, I want to tell you, and we won't take time to document this in Scripture right now, but you need to know that once you enter into this period, if, if you were present in this period, and once God starts pouring out His wrath, not only is it horrible, but it's irreversible. It's not going to stop. This is the age of grace. This is the time where God is holding back his wrath. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of peace and calm. Today is the day that the stars stay in their place. We don't know when God is going to trip this lever and put it all into action. But thirdly, it's not only horrible, it's not only irreversible once it kicks into gear. But the good news today, my friend, is that this is all avoidable. It's all avoidable. It's all avoidable. It's a warning passage. You're going to be arrogant, jump the fence, and outrun the bull because you got a little card in your pocket? You think you're the man? You think you know what you're doing? You think you can flip off God forever? You think you can tell Jesus to just get out of your life? You think you can take the word of God and just ignore it? Ultimately, it will be brought right in your face and your knee will bow and your tongue will confess. How much better on a beautiful day like today, clothed and in your right mind and among God's people, to bow your head and humble your heart 
and to say, Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be my sin bearer. And thank you that I had bear my sin no more. And I admit my sinfulness. And I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And I want to be part of the family of God. I want to be robed in the righteousness of Christ. I want to be one of his own. And he has not appointed his own unto wrath. It's a warning. Will you heed it today, my friend? Let's bow in prayer. privacy of your own mind before I pray and the quietness of your own heart will you turn your face towards God will you turn your eyes upon Jesus please would you admit that you're sinful do passages like these as difficult as they are to place on the timeline and as difficult as they are to understand exactly what's happening do they not instill in us an incredible fear of God Do they not elevate Christ to his rightful place? The ruler of the world, the ruler of the universe, the one from whom eventually even the sky and the earth and the sea will flee from his presence, the one who with one word, with the sword of his mouth, will destroy all of the assembled armies of of the earth. Why don't you... Heed the warning and accept his salvation today. He sent his son to die in your place because he loves you. And there is no sin that Jesus didn't bear the weight of on the cross. And by faith alone, believing it to be true, today, right now, you can transfer your guilt, transfer your sinfulness, your wickedness, your unworthiness, to the cross, to Jesus. And by faith, believing that Jesus took it when he went to the cross, and you receive back his righteousness so that when a holy God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But it doesn't happen automatically. It is for you to cry out to a holy God, admitting your sinfulness and receiving by faith this gift of salvation that is true for you. Will you do that right now? It's a, it's a deal that you have to make with God. It's probably not the best way to say it, but it's, it's up to you before a holy God to surrender your heart, to admit your sinfulness, to receive forgiveness of your sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone. Tell him you're a sinner. Receive his salvation in Christ. Life everlasting. Heaven secured. No threat of hell. So, Father, you see our hearts and our minds and do your work through your Holy Spirit. May may our eyes be turned directly on Jesus, the one who bore our sin at the cross, the one who is the mighty one, only one worthy to open these scrolls, and the only one who's worthy for the world to bow down in his presence. Father, may you bring a great fear into our hearts that we should live long enough to experience these horrible tragedies. May we cast ourselves at the foot of the cross and beg for mercy from you, a holy God, to forgive us of our sin. Enter into new life in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.